0: This morning's scripture will be taken from Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 22. Genesis 6, verse 11 through 22. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door on, of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing all, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on, of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take, up, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him.
1: One Sunday, an an embarrassed woman came up to the preacher after the worship service. And she said, I hope you didn't take it personally when my husband walked out on your sermon. And the preacher said, well, I did find that fairly peculiar. And the woman went on to explain, I just want you to know it's not a reflection on you or your preaching. My husband's been sleepwalking ever since he was a child. Now, that is not told from personal experience, at least not that I know of. But it's interesting because last week, as we talked about this interplay of spirit and truth when it comes to our worship, the one thing that apparently stood out to most people is the emphasis I placed on, on, on being rested when you come, come to worship. Excuse me, being rested, because I've received more comments on that point than anything else. And and, and it's funny, because as a preacher, the one thing you get joked on the most about is the fact that people fall asleep during your worship, and then the preacher's encouraging you to be rested before you come, and then everybody's commenting on the fact that you talked about being rested before you come. I think it's because everybody's used to getting their rest right now. But today, we'll be talking about rest in just a moment, because rest does have a theological component to it. As we continue our study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we arrive in Genesis chapter 6. And it's in Genesis chapter 6 that we're going to encounter the story of Noah and the flood. But actually, before we dive into chapter 6, I want to take you back to the last couple of verses of Genesis chapter 5. Because in Genesis chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, we're actually introduced to Noah. We're introduced to Noah as the grandson of Lamech. And Lamech actually explains Noah's name. He's the only name of ten generations in the chapter 5 of Genesis that is explained for us. And here is what we're told. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work. And from the painful toil of our hands. Other translations say this one will give us comfort or this one will comfort us. The name Noah literally means rest, but contains sounds similar to the word for bringing relief. Noah's name means rest. Now, why is it significant that Noah is associated with rest? It's important to remember that when sin entered the world, among its consequences was a curse on the ground that resulted in painful, sweat-inducing labor for mankind. Work existed prior to the first sin, because you can go back to Genesis chapter 2 when God created man. Verse 15 tells us that the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So work existed even when Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. But, as a consequence of the first sin, work became laborious. Work became difficult. Work became painful because of that curse on the ground. So work was not a result of the curse, but the absence of rest appears to be. That's because both in the Old Testament and the New, salvation is equated with rest see in the old testament the promised land was associated with rest as the israelites were being rescued from egyptian slavery and escorted by god to the promised land their des- destination was often equated with rest in deuteronomy chapter 12 verses 8 through 11 as moses was sharing god's laws with israel prior to their arrival in canaan he said this you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you do, when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you shall live in safety. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. Moses defines the promised land or identifies the promised land, not only as an inheritance, but also a place of rest. Their ultimate destination, as they left bondage and journeyed to freedom, their ultimate destination was a place of rest. And then if you go over to the New Testament, heaven is frequently associated with rest. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, we read these words, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. That voice described heaven as a place of permanent rest. And the reason that is possible is because that curse, which was the consequence of the fall... Won't be a part of heaven. If you journey ahead in Revelation to the 22nd chapter and you look at the first three verses, here's a description of heaven. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of god and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him there is kind of a, a reprint of the garden of eden in these words you have in this description that tree of life returning but you also have this statement in verse 3 that nothing accursed will be there and the point is that in heaven we will have relief from all things that accompanied the curse in heaven we will experience perfect rest as we reside in the place where evil no longer exists, where death no longer dominates, and where pain no longer persists. In other words, heaven will present us with perfect rest because we will have no reason to worry, no reason to doubt, no reason to be afraid, no reason to be frustrated, and no reason to be burdened. And that's why Jesus' ultimate invitation is all about rest. It's Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, where Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, all throughout the Bible, there is this connection between salvation and rest. And that means that Noah's story influences our theology of salvation. Now, to be fair, this study of Genesis has been a study of the origins of key pieces of our theology. We can't look to Noah and see the origin of salvation. The origin of salvation precedes the creation of the world. We're told in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10 that God saved us before the ages began. And Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. There is this element in which salvation was part of the plan before God even said, let there be light. God knew what it was going to take to repair what we do wrong. God was preparing and planning for how to save us long before he created us. And that means salvation was not an afterthought. That means it was not a last-second decision. That means that God initiated creation knowing full well what it was going to take to fulfill His creative purpose. And while the origin of salvation precedes Noah, it is in the story of Noah that the key elements of our theology about salvation become clear. And that's our focus today. See, when we look at the story of Noah, we're reminded that salvation is contingent on God's grace. Salvation is contingent on God's grace. That statement should not be surprising to you since Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved. But we have to admit that within the churches of Christ, we have often made too little of grace in an effort to not make too much of it. If I ask you, what are the steps of salvation? Which one do you start with? Where do you start? What's number one? Let's go ahead. You, you can speak up. Here. Where was grace? Didn't grace precede hearing? By grace you have been saved. And so when we talk about the steps of salvation, we have a tendency to skip over grace. And in so doing, we're doing a disservice to God because he initiated this thing called salvation by extending grace to us. So look at what we learn about Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. We find out that Noah is a righteous man who was blameless in his generation. Now, does that mean that Noah was sinless? Absolutely not. The Bible affirms in both testaments that everyone is sin-stained. Psalm chapter 14 and verse 3 declares that there is none who does good, not even one. And Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 famously states that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So no one is perfect. No one is sinless. And this declaration that Noah was righteous and blameless does not mean that he had not sinned. To say he was righteous means that he treated people justly. Amos used the terms righteousness and justice synonymously when he declared in Amos chapter 5 and verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So when we say that Noah was righteous, we're talking about the way he treated people, his pursuit of justice. And then to refer to him as blameless means that he was complete or he was whole, particularly in regards to his commitment to the Lord. And and this meaning of blameless is reinforced by that reference to the fact that Noah walked with God there at the end of verse 9. One commentator summarized this well. He said, Taken together, these descriptive phrases indicate that Noah was a man of high moral uprightness And integrity. He was faithful to God and upright in his dealings with his fellow man. And this sets him in sharp contrast to his generation. Remember, he's called blameless in his generation. What's his generation known for? It's described in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 as contemplating and being motivated by evil continually. They set the bar pretty low for Noah, but Noah set the bar pretty high. So Noah stands out from the wickedness of his contemporaries. Now notice what the text says in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6. It says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, or Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, depending on which translation you are using. Both translations are acceptable. Does that mean that Noah deserved God's favor or God's grace because he was so righteous and blameless? Absolutely not. One commentator said, God is never under obligation to bestow favor on man because of his righteousness. God is never under obligation to bestow favor unto man because of his righteousness. Because the truth is, like us, as has already been pointed out, Noah was a sinner. His righteousness was grand in comparison to his contemporaries, but his righteousness was pathetic in comparison to his Lord. And so Noah doesn't deserve grace. Noah, like all of us, deserves for his sins to be punished. So when the text says that he found favor, what it's ultimately saying is Noah's chosenness was a gift from God. A gift he received rather than a prize he won or a reward he earned. And that's how Paul describes salvation on multiple occasions. We've already appealed to Ephesians chapter 2 In Romans chapter 3, if you look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul pointed out that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then he went on to say that we all are justified by His grace as a gift. And in Ephesians chapter 2, after declaring that we are saved by grace, Paul went on to point out that salvation is the gift of God. This gift language is consistently associated with salvation and in particular, God's activity in that salvation process, His grace. So Noah's chosenness was a gift, and Noah's chosenness is a reminder that we are incapable of saving ourselves. That's why we need God's grace. We are incapable of bringing about our own salvation. Do you remember the story of that rich young man? Do you remember when he approached Jesus, what question he asked? He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life in Mark chapter 10 and verse 17? Another way of saying that is, is, what must I do to be saved? That's his ultimate question. And Jesus' initial response to his question was, keep the commandments which the rich young man claimed he had done since he was a child. Now, if he's kept all the Mosaic commandments, then why is he concerned about his salvation? I think it's because he was looking for reassurance. I think there's an element of uncertainty to his faith. I think he's not certain that he's done enough to earn his salvation. He's got a flawed understanding of salvation. And that's when Jesus exposed his inability to earn salvation because he called him to do the one thing he would be unwilling to do, and that was sell all that he had and give it to the poor. And when the rich young man heard that, we're told in Mark chapter 10 and verse 22 that he went away sorrowful. Now, we spent a lot of time studying that passage on the, earlier this year in one of our very first lessons. But I want you to notice the postscript to that story. In Mark chapter 10, between verse 23 and 27, there's a conversation that takes place between Jesus and his disciples after this rich young man walks away. And that conversation is built around the disciples trying to figure out who can be saved. If this morally upright, if this commandment-keeping rich man can't be saved, then who in the world can be saved? That's their ultimate question. They're confused. They're perplexed by what Jesus has just said. And Jesus responds to their question by saying this in Mark chapter 10 and verse 27. With man, it is impossible. Now think about that for a moment. It's not possible for the rich young man to save himself. It's not possible for those disciples to save themselves. Jesus is saying it's not possible for you and I to save ourselves. But Jesus did not conclude his response with what was impossible. He finished by pointing out what was possible. And that's when he said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. While the rich young man and even Jesus' disciples were focused on what must I do, Jesus changed the question to what has God done? Because salvation is contingent on grace, first and foremost. But salvation is not solely contingent on grace. Going back to that Ephesians 2 passage that we've looked at twice already, it doesn't simply say, by grace you have been saved. It actually says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that means salvation is contingent on our faith as well. Now, faith is defined for us in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and, and many of you probably know that definition. Hebrews 11, 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, In other words, faith is defined as belief without the need for evidence. Does that mean that all salvation requires of us is an abstract belief in God? Absolutely not. The heroes of faith presented in Hebrews chapter 11 prove that faith includes obedience. If you just run down the list of faith heroes identified in that chapter, the one thing you'll quickly notice is that every one of them engaged in some sort of Of obedient activity so for instance we can read in verse 4 how Abel brought God a better offering we can read in verse 8 how by faith Abraham obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going in verse 21 you can read about Jacob by faith Jacob worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff by faith Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God And by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after Joshua's army had marched around them for seven days. And by faith, the prostitute Rahab welcomed the spies. Abel brought. Abraham went. Jacob worshipped. Moses chose. The army marched. Rahab welcomed. The actions of these heroes of faith show that faith alone cannot save you. There was a response that they had to make, an action they had to take. There was obedience expected of them as well. That's why James chapter 2 and verse 24 explicitly says, a person is justified. Now, that's salvation terminology. A person is justified by works. That's a reference to obedient activity. A person is justified by, by works and not by faith alone. And you may have noticed that in that list of heroes in Hebrews chapter 11 that I skipped the individual we're talking about today. That I skipped Noah. He too is mentioned in the faith hall of fame, but I want you to consider why he was included in this list. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, you'll see that Noah received some specific instructions from the Lord. It's in Genesis chapter 6, particularly verse 14 through 16. Where God God told Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above. Set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now, I just want you to think for a moment. If Noah had ignored any of these instructions, would the story have ended the same way with the salvation of him and his family? If Noah had used spruce instead of gopher wood because he found it to be more pliable, or if he had used oak instead of gopher wood because he found it to be stronger, would he have had faith? If he had decided that, that covering this massive structure in pitch was too complicated, the wood will float fine on its own would he have had faith? If he hadn't constructed it to the dimensions that God ordered, but decided to reduce its size because it could get done quicker, would he have had faith? You see, in the story of Noah, the instructions he receives from the Lord, if not followed, indicate that he lacked faith. See, Noah is held up as a model of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, not because he simply believed in God, but because he obeyed God's instructions. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7 says, By faith, Noah in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So Abel offered, Abraham went, Moses chose, Rahab welcomed, Noah constructed. His obedient activity is part of his faith. And that shouldn't be surprising to us, because there is an inescapable and irrevocable relationship between faith and obedience. And that means if you do not obey then your faith is incomplete. I want you to notice a couple of passages as we draw this to a close. But if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1 and 2, God told the Israelites this, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. There is a condition here. The condition is obedience. And notice the link between faith and obedience at the very start of of, of God's words. If you faithfully obey. Then if we get to the New Testament, go to something John the Baptist said in John chapter 3 and verse 36. John said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, do you notice how John used terms interchangeably here? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So why wouldn't he say, whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life? It's because belief and obedience go hand in hand. John is saying, If you believe, you'll have eternal life. If you don't believe, you won't. If you'll obey, you'll have eternal life. If you don't, you won't. He's using belief and obedience interchangeably because they are that connected. And this relationship between faith and obedience is why Peter draws a comparison between Noah's story and salvation in his very first letter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 20, Peter indicated that the inhabitants of the ark were brought safely through the water. And then he said this in verse 21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the point is that the water's were the means through which God's grace was able to save Noah and his family, because through faith they obeyed his instructions to build the ark that could thereby float upon the waters. And Peter's point is that now baptism is the means through which God's grace is able to save us, because through faith we obey his instructions to be buried with Christ and to put on Christ through baptism. This morning we're reminded that salvation is linked to rest. We're reminded that salvation is contingent on God's grace. We're reminded that salvation is also contingent on our faith. And we're reminded that faith without obedience is incomplete. The story of Noah is a reminder to us that sin is dealt with, and we get to choose how. We can either be numbered among those who allows our sin to be punished when the day comes, or we can be numbered among those who choose God's chosen vessel to find our way to salvation. This morning, if you've not been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, we invite you to make that decision so that you can one day experience the rest that Jesus offers. If you need to make that decision, we invite you to come while together.